don't do too many markets at the same time. Focus on the ones that are really, really attractive for you and then go all in. You have to approach a new market in the mindset. Nobody knows you there. You have to start from scratch. You need to build your marketing. You need to go on trade shows. You need to do the PR work. You need to speak to a hell of a lot of people to really get the same trust that you have at home. Welcome to Inorganic, where we talk about all things inorganic and indirect growth for hyperscale SaaS companies. I'm your host, Christian Hasselt, and on this show, I open source everything I've learned over my 24-year career of building companies. Our guests are exclusively those who have been through the same journey and know how to cheat gravity and accelerate growth. Welcome back to Inorganic. I'm your host, Christian Hasselt. Today, we are going to talk about expanding from Europe to the U.S. growth strategy as we think about the way that we grow and accelerate our business and a tool for growth strategy is expanding international. There's not a playbook for expanding international. There's absolutely no playbook. Both index ventures and frontline ventures have done some work in this area on showing kind of like the use cases, the key considerations. But there's not a lot out there really talking about like, how do you do this in the right way? So on today's episode, I've got my friend Marcel, who is co-founder of Products Up. They expanded from US to Europe. Welcome to the podcast, Marcel. It's great to have you. Thanks, Christian. Marcel, why don't you give us a little bit of background here on yourself and Products Up? Sure. I'm one of the co-founders of Products Up. Products Up is a 300 people software as a service business. We started it in 2010. We work with brands and retailers and help them syndicate their product content across all kinds of consumer touch points from retailers to online marketplaces to search engines and so on. I'm also a partner with a venture capital fund here in, uh, in Germany called Cavalry Ventures. We're investing out of the third fund with approximately 60 portfolio companies. So I think I've got a quite broad view basically on the venture ecosystem, but also like the software as a service business. And in my role in Products Up, I help the company, as I, as you already said, expand basically into, into the US, have had go-to-market roles over the years. And basically, yeah, a good amount of lessons learned there that I keep sharing also with other entrepreneurs and companies who want to make the same steps. And we're going to talk about lessons learned. We're, we're definitely going to get to that. I think the first question that I want to explore together is, when is the right time to expand? How do you make that decision through a framework of product readiness and ability to invest leadership overhead in the work you need to do in order to make the expansion successful? So why don't we start there with your thoughts? I think as always, it depends. Typically, what I see or what I recommend is if you have some kind of a growth hack that you can identify, and I share ours in a, in a minute, you can do it earlier. If not, I think the organization needs to have a certain amount of market readiness and uh, product market fit already. And uh, let's say a, a good amount of customers and a strong revenue base in the home market. So basically, our our growth hack when we entered from Germany into the US was that we identified a partner back in the days that was Marin Software. Marin just IPO'd and they were wanted to grow aggressively. And our former chief sales officer basically started a partnership with them. 
that's not rocket science. The rocket science was, or the growth hack was, that we basically got Marcus, our CSO, a desk in the office of Marin in San Francisco. So he was basically sitting there, right? He wanted to spend half a year in, in California anyways, go surfing in the afternoon, right? So we, we, we put him into this office in, at Marin. And what happened was that the Marin guys, whenever they had an issue with product catalogs and data and so on in their, in their pitches and RFPs, they would just approach Marcus and say, hey, can you come along basically and help us win this deal, right? So it was a win-win for, for Marin and for us. And that helped us really to get some of the first really US clients. And because of Marin being an enterprise player themselves, it was really large retailers and brands that we were able to win. And from there, we basically continued to grow. But this really helped us without a lot of funds and a lot of investment to get to the first clients. We even like, we didn't even have a, um, an entity in the US back in the days, right? So we built that from Europe. So it was really lean. If you don't find that kind of growth hack, unfortunately, I think things are a little bit more expensive, basically, and, and you need a bit more structure that we as a company also have these days. But this hack really helped us grow in the first place. So that lever of, of partnerships is critical. It's actually true in both directions. If you're a U.S. company expanding into Europe, you absolutely need partnerships, especially in the countries where you're not English first, but irrespective of that, you've got to have some sort of ecosystem on the ground. Number one, because just wherever you are, when customers know that your home base is not the country or not the place that you're currently in, they want to know how they're going to be supported in their time zone. It's one of the first questions they ask, especially if we're talking about an enterprise product where any kind of customer success or support is required in order for the customer successfully adopt and use the product. I really like how you talk about that, that partnership with uh, Marin Software as a way of, of doing that. Did you identify through that partnership there were things you needed to do with the product in order to make it ready for the U.S. market? We were quite ready for the U.S. market already. So one thing that Europeans do very, very well is Europe as a, as a market is different from the U.S., right? So in Europe, we speak, I don't know how many languages, Spanish, German, French, Dutch, and so on, Swedish, right? So if you are a software business out of Europe, you have to figure out how to deal with multiple markets quite early on. And obviously, the UK is English speaking, right? So there's, and that's where you typically also start before you go into the US, you start selling in the UK to test the waters. We were quite ready for internationalizing early on. And that probably is even a little bit of a strength that European companies have. They have to face that challenge quite early on. What we needed to do was build more structure around what you just mentioned, um, customer success, partnerships, uh, go to market, and also a little bit of let's say, local um, solution engineering to figure out some specifics of the market. But I would say that the platform in general was quite robust. Revenue-wise, I would say we were around 5 to 6 million in ARR when we entered in the US. We are now north of 30 million to give it some perspective in total. And I think we, we couldn't have done it much earlier than that, right? Because also US expansion is, is um, expensive. You need to grow the team from scratch. Nobody basically knows you in the market when you come there. And um, all of this costs money. So one of your first boots on the ground was the sale chief sales officer? Marcus basically was there for six months in the Marin office in San Francisco, as I said. And one of his jobs was to also build a team there. 
So the first guy he hired in San Francisco looked very good on the CV. Actually, I think he also did well in our interviews. And then we realized at one point he never replies to emails within business hours, right? So something was, something was off. Marcus flew over there again after a while and then actually realized the guy was an Uber driver by day and <laughs> was working on our client relationships at night. So this didn't work out. We had two additional uh, managers, actually, in the Bay Area that we tried. Both failed for us, I think, for a multitude of reasons. It were, the people weren't necessarily poor performers or bad. Good CVs, good backgrounds. We just realized the time difference is quite critical, right? So when you are in Berlin and you're talking to someone in San Francisco, it's nine hours time difference. So basically, when my day ends, the regular day, their day starts. So that was really hard to manage. We would have needed to show a little bit more presence, basically, also from the executive management team during the period where we um, started there. But are you saying perhaps that maybe uh, were you to go back, the thing you would have done is probably a little more rigor on hiring, but also on having someone from your team on the ground just helping that team get started? I mean, you, there's two ways of looking at it, right? You might have made the wrong hire. Or you just didn't set the hire up for success. Exactly. I think it's a probably a combination of both. Maybe the truth is in the middle. But what we changed in the years to come was we changed our office location to New York. So East Coast, which makes a lot of difference because all of a sudden you have already three business hours overlap. If I stay a little bit longer in the office. And if the US team starts a little bit more early, right, you already have five hours. So this is enough to basically uh, remotely get a lot of stuff done. And obviously, it's quicker to reach. What we also did is we showed a lot more presence, basically, when we restarted on the East Coast. And what I recommend founders these days is when they do it, sometimes, I mean, if you have a family and so on, it's hard to relocate. But what you can do is you can establish a cadence and say, I don't know, C-level one spends four weeks in the US, then the next comes for two weeks, next comes uh, four weeks, next comes for four weeks. So everyone stays a month from uh, the different departments, basically starts to establish culture there, um, just be yeah. there as a sparings partner that already goes, goes a long way. I just thought I'd share this data while we're talking. Index Ventures did a survey of about 180 of their companies. And what they found of that survey was a pretty equal weight between companies that were locating in New York versus San Francisco. You can kind of see in it by a distance, Boston and LA are a little bit behind. It works like that. And I, I think that this data is actually really important to the point that you're raising, which is there is such a dramatic difference in time zone between San Francisco and any part of Europe, essentially when anyone's waking up at eight or eight o'clock in the morning in San Francisco time, it's essentially the end of the day in Europe. And so it makes it not just hard for leadership to communicate, but just for the teams to communicate in general. One of the things that I've seen work in hiring is actually that first boot on the ground could be a leader, but it could also actually be just like a really good sales engineer, someone that actually is got a lot more life flexibility for one reason or another that, you know, a young couple or generally is feeling more flexible. Those people who really have a command of the product and of the business and have, are trusted by the team, they can be a great support mechanism for the others. 
leadership involvement without a doubt is important. And I would advocate in my experience having some kind of leadership on the ground to really just set direction and drive day to day and make sure that the vision of the company is being executed. But having someone who is much more of a support mechanism, not just to sales, but that's customers there, because you're going to be wearing a lot of hats. You'll be customer success one day. You might be sales engineering another day. You might be helping enable a partner on another day. You, you, it's basically a Swiss army knife kind of a role. I can echo that. So I think our leadership in the U.S., probably has changed more often than the actual contributors, right, in the various teams. So from customer success to marketing to sales, solution engineering that you just mentioned. So we, we had those people set up and set up for success and productive before we actually had a management in place that took a lot longer to build. That really gets you a long way. So I think some of the people on the ground in the U.S., They even started remotely from Phoenix, Arizona, from Florida and so on, right? So we was very pragmatic. They've been with the company for over five, six years now. It's really hard to hire senior leadership in either direction. It's very difficult to hire the right senior leadership for the company. You're placing an incredible amount of trust in them to build the business and the mandate that they have in absence of a partnership like the one you talked about with Marin, the mandate is help grow our, our business in the U.S. by leaps and bounds with no market proof. One of the things that you really need is not just the leadership, but you need customer commitments that they will expand with you. Did you explore that as an avenue of getting customers that had international presence being willing to back your expansion? That totally helped right so we we are working with a lot of multinational brands and retailers mainly brands that are active in Europe and that helped us open doors in the US another a good avenue for us were global agencies like WPP Group M Dentsu like these big groups that had counterparts in the US and helped us basically open door there Also, um, what proved to be very, very good for us is working with channel partners, not channel in this, in the sense of solution integrators, but like really Google, TikTok, Meta and so on. So where we have grown strong relationships within Europe and we, ex we managed to expand that into the US as well. And they were then able also to give proof and trust to partners who evaluated us as a vendor we were able to refer to them and say, okay, look, speak to Facebook. We've been working with them in Europe for five years already, super successful. And a lot of cases, they were also vetting us as a vendor saying, okay, you can work with them. They're reliable. It's a little bit of weird German guys, yes, but uh, tr trust me, it's, it's going to work, right? <laughs> <laughs> This is actually one of the sort of predecessor questions to the kind of hires that you make, which is, What are the goals that you set as a founding team? Like, how do you define what success looks like first, I'd say 12 to 24 months? And I'll set that up by saying the first mistake you can make is creating an artificial revenue target without predecessor signals of what will drive revenue. How did you think about that? I think that's exactly what we did. <laughs> And of course, it didn't work. So, I mean, we went in and uh, set revenue targets and you do that with the background as an organization that you have 
in mind, like how you are represented in Europe and so on, right? So where you already have some kind of a brand and so on, and you you plan in the same mindset and then you enter a new market like the US and nobody knows you basically, right? So this is, I think it was set up for failure from the beginning when we did it. So it took us a few years to basically realize that this growth hack with Marin took us to certain customers and to certain results, but it wasn't scalable in the end. What we needed to figure out was basically how we build a scalable sales and go-to-market engine in the US like we did in Europe. And I think what we realized there, and that is something I also tell to other founders, is don't do too many markets at the same time. Focus on the ones that are really, really attractive for you and then go all in. If you just do it half-hearted, it probably will not work because you have to approach a new market like the US in the mindset, nobody knows you there. You have to start from scratch. You need to build your marketing. You need to go on trade shows. You need to do the PR work. You need to speak to a hell of a lot of people to really get the same trust that you have at home. I think once we understood that things got a lot better and we started heavily investing in all of the things, trade shows, PR, marketing, hiring uh, the team and so on, I think a lot of European companies basically fail there, right? Because they just send like one or two people and they think this is going to work somehow because it does in Europe. But it, it's almost like starting a new company from the mindset. It is. It's very much like that. It goes both ways. It really does. So if you think about sending a couple of people to Europe, what are the goals that you're going to set? There's a lot of countries to cover. Lots of languages, lots of countries can get very overwhelming. And in Europe, it's very noisy. Like, which conferences do you go to? Where do you invest your time and energy? Sometimes where you think your big bet might be, for example, in the commerce space in Europe, DMEX is like the big show. So you might say, I'll send someone there. But then it turns out that maybe some specific user conference is way more, way more fruitful. Conversely, in the US, there is a lot of conference noise. For every category of product. There's 10 conferences of mean and size. And so it can get very expensive really quickly. So I think measuring your successes in terms of customer adoption, making bets around the use cases for which clients will adopt your product and use them and have those use cases prove out and turn from either free pilots or low cost pilots into paid committed contracts those are example kind of commitments that I've seen work in expansion versus setting a goal. Now, your, your CFO, especially if you're up near 6, 8, 10 million ARR, your CFO is going to want a number on the back of the market. But that number should not be the number that you manage the team by because it just creates unnecessary distraction and pressure from building a sustainable ecosystem. The CFO wants a number and obviously our investors also wanted a number, right? What I've seen change in the in the last decade for the good is that there's a, a much better understanding these days, especially on the European side, what it really means to grow internationally, what it will take, what the cost on the team will be, um, on the founders, on everything basically. And investors also don't take it as lightheartedly anymore saying, hey, Go in the US, right? So everybody has understood, okay, this is a little bit harder than it looks on paper. Will probably cost double, which it does, than growing a company in, in Europe, right? Because like office rent, staff, marketing, like everything is double the cost, basically. You have to understand this, right? And investors, fortunately, keep understanding that more and more. 
And I think you are also seeing more and more success from European companies in the US these days. Yeah. Although there's not a playbook, I think customers are getting used to part of sort of the information age or the ability for us to meet virtually and do all that. The customers are getting more comfortable with having cross-border partnerships. I wonder going back to thinking about the people that were the ICs that you hired earlier, and you've mentioned their tenure, they've outlasted the tenure of your more senior leadership. What have been the attributes of those ICs that have made them, in your mind, successful? I'd say they are people that are a lot more entrepreneurial than your average employee. And just to give you an example, when we, when we started in the US, we started without having an entity, basically. We had no corp that we have these days. So we were hiring all of these people basically as freelancers. Right. So, and it, it, I think it takes a, a certain mindset to say, okay, I'm going to start working for this company from Germany that nobody has ever heard of. Right. I mean, okay, cool guys. Product looks good, but um, I'm, I'm taking the risk and, and they're not even going to hire me with a proper entity. Right. So I, I will have to start as a freelancer and that sorts out basically people quite quickly. And I think that led to the fact that the, kind of folks that started working with us was more risk-taking than the average. And that was probably also what we needed because in the end, we were like a startup, right, in the in the market and had to start from scratch. And I think then you need those more entrepreneurial-minded uh, folks on board. I think one of the, the attributes besides risk-taking that you're highlighting is ability to deal with ambiguity because there's an incredible amount of ambiguity and how to make decisions around where to invest your time. Even if you do have some on-the-ground support, they ultimately have to make decisions about how they're going to spend their time during the day. What are they going to do to make an impact on the business? And so it's that entrepreneurial mindset that gets them thinking about how do I help contribute to the business, but also how do I deal with a lot of ambiguity? And I think probably the other attribute that I've seen really make a big difference is just the ability to be creative. Because the kind of very sort of basic things that frequently become challenges is I need to make a case study. So I'm going to have to borrow a case study that's written in German and translate it to English, which you can easily do nowadays. There's all sorts of tools for that or onboarding material for a customer that needs to be translated or transposed. Like There's not a resource sitting in the office waiting for them to call to say, hey, I need to transpose this data And conversely, you should be thinking about giving that person a little bit of budget for freelancers to help them. One of the things that I used as a hack when I expanded a company to Europe is I used a lot of freelancers for a lot of different needs that I had because otherwise I would have spent the entire day doing a lot of admin work. But freelancers, you know, giving them a little bit of room to make decisions matters. At what point did you feel like you would hit it? What was the signal that you had that you had graduated from the early stage figuring things out to a mature, a mature market player in the U.S. following the expansion? About what time did that happen? I think there's a couple of indicators where you realize, okay, something has changed. I'd say, first of all, if you knock at the customer's door and they have heard about you, right, that is a is a pretty good indicator that you're doing something right. If you go on trade shows and, and companies inquire with you for meetings and so on, 
but also you meet, you uh, realize it when when you recruit for example right when when you are able to attract good talent that also would have had the chance to go and work at another great SaaS company right when you are able to represent yourself as a as a good employer in the US so that that is definitely something i mean we do a fair amount of pr work as well so also journalists and so on by now they know our name and i think like very business business driven or like looking looking at the numbers when you for example have the, had the third or fourth uh, quarter where you actually were on target right that is also something where you realize okay i think we're doing something right here yeah let's not talk about the last uh, 18 months that was for sure an outlier when it comes to targets i think for everyone but I think we we arrived at the point where we had a sales team in place with the same structure that we, for example, would have in Europe, a BDR team, pre-sales, account executives, and they were hitting their numbers. And I think when once you get there, and a lot of things have to come together to make it work, right? It's not just the job of the sales, it's also the marketing needs to work and, and all of the back office functions and so on to really get there. Yeah, that makes sense. Being able to hit your numbers consistently and having a team where people are playing their roles you're graduating from sort of a couple of ICs doing nine jobs to having people, your sales is doing sales work, pre-sales is doing pre-sales marketing. I think those are, those are great examples of signals. As we're kind of coming to the, to the wrap up here, maybe like uh, were you to go back and start all over again, what are the one or two lessons you've learned? What would you do, do different? I would not do as much lean experiments as we used to do in the past. So I would go all in from the beginning. And also clearly define that with, with the investors on board, set up a budget, figure out whether everybody supports it. Because in the end, what's, I mean, what was always clear for us is that we wanted the US market one way or the other, right? And obviously, we started to, to play it as lean as possible. We lost a lot of time just by doing that, right? In the end, it turned out successful. But we could have basically arrived there probably two or three years earlier, that would also have been good for everyone. And especially in a time where, where capital was really cheap. And nowadays, okay, maybe looking at it from today's capital markets, I might probably do it a little bit differently. But five, six, seven years ago, where money really wasn't the issue, I think going all in from the beginning, maybe even moving a founder over permanently for a year or two, maybe even longer, that would have been the, the chosen strategy. Your CFO... And your leadership team, your investors need to recognize that regardless of which direction you expand, the cost at a minimum, if it's not at least around a million dollars a year, you're essentially dragging out your success over time. Why is it such a big number? It's a big number because leadership costs money. You've got to hire people at market rate. If you're moving a founder over, you're going to have to pay some of their costs. That's just a factor. And then you're going to have to hire a couple of people and invest a little bit in presence. So it, when you start putting all those numbers together, you, you, it's really hard to say, oh, I'm just going to do throw a couple hundred grand at this and we'll see what happens. You really are putting a lot of constraints on the business. It's hard now. And I think you're right. In this environment, maybe the bar is raised a little bit. And so it's not that the costs have changed. The cost may be a little bit more than than what we're talking about, but conviction that you're going to have a successful land is a question you really need to deeply answer yourself. Why do you have the right to win expanding now? I'd rather do a little bit less markets and then really focus on the ones uh, that are relevant. I mean, in, in Europe, there's a saying, 
if you're not successful as a software business in the US, you're probably or you're, you're basically irrelevant globally, right? You can be as successful in Germany as you like. If nobody in the US knows you, for the capital markets, you don't exist, basically. So I'd, I'd rather do less experiments in France, for example, and, and go all in in the US in the future. I think we've pulled out of France probably three times already. So this is a really tough market, maybe for a different podcast. But uh, Let's have a separate you, podcast just on standing up a go-to-market engine in Germany and France and uh, exactly what you need to do to be successful. Marcel, thanks so much for coming on the pod and sharing your experience expanding from Germany to United States. Really insightful and products up is is a, a fantastic business. So really excited to have you here and kind of share that story. For all you listeners, thanks for taking time to listen to Inorganic. And we'll look forward to catching up again soon. Thank you for listening to the Inorganic Podcast. Make sure to check out the show notes and description for a rundown of today's show and all the important links. If you enjoyed this episode, leave a review on Apple Podcasts and let's continue the conversation on my LinkedIn. I'm Christian Hasselt. Happy scaling. Happy scaling.